November 3, 1973, National Airlines Flight 27, a two-year-old DC-10, is cruising at 39,000 feet over New Mexico. The flight crew decides to pull all three engine tachometer circuit breakers in order to perform an experiment. While performing their experiment, the crew feels and hears an explosion as the number three engine fan assembly disintegrates. Some of the engine fragments strike the cabin of the plane, blowing out a window and causing a passenger to be sucked out of the plane. June 10th, 1990. British Airways Flight 5390, a BAC-111 has just taken off from Birmingham, England and is climbing to its cruising altitude on its way to Malaga Airport in Spain. As the plane climbs through 17,300 feet, the crew hears a loud bang as the plane's left windscreen comes loose, causing an explosive decompression and sucking the captain most of the way out of the plane. The crew grabs onto the captain's ankles in a desperate attempt to keep him from falling to the ground. What happens when a plane decompresses? Does the crew of British Airways 5390 hold on to the captain? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Oh, God, sucked out of a plane. <laughs> it's a, a it's a little a little different uh, episode this week. We got uh, two incidents, both of which involve people getting uh, sucked out of a plane. It's a uh, a very unusual thing. All all aircraft incidents are unusual. This is uh, unlike any other episode we've done so far. I, I didn't mean to cut off the intros, but I had to respond to getting sucked out of a plane. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get into detail on those <laughs> in this episode. Uh, but yeah, everyone, welcome to Black Box Down, the uh, podcast about aviation incidents. And this episode, we'll be talking about people getting sucked out of planes. I'm Gus, and I'm here with Chris, and uh, we're here yeah. to talk uh, about aviation. And I just want to give a quick reminder to everyone, follow us on social media at BlackBoxDownPod on Twitter and Instagram. I already know what images I'm going to post for this episode. Oh. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to want to see them. It's uh, it's crazy. So yeah, um, it's not something I guess you typically think about, right? I mean, you're... Well, no, it is exactly something you typically think about. This is like... Uh, but people think about like planes crashing or going out. No one thinks about getting like sucked out of the plane. Yeah, they do. Do they? It's like in, Yeah, that's like in like tons of movies. There's always people getting sucked out of planes. I think it's like... Uh, that's, but it seems like something that doesn't actually happen. Right. That's why I would like, it's just like the, the kind of yeah. like super overly dramatic thing you see in a movie that you don't think actually ever really does happen. Yeah. It seems like, oh, well, that's a little far-fetched, mm-hmm. but I guess not. Right. So, I mean, well, let's dive right into it, right? I mean, so this is the first one we're talking about is National Airlines Flight 27. And uh, it was a passenger flight from Miami to San Francisco, but on the way it had stops at New Orleans, Houston, and Las Vegas. And like I said, this was November of 1973. And uh, it was a two-year-old DC-10, just under 6,000 hours on it. So pretty new plane, right? Yeah. We've done a few incidents with DC-10s. People think of them negatively. They had a few incidents early on when they were produced that kind of tainted the image of that plane. Uh But uh, yeah, so this was a fairly new DC-10, just under 6,000 hours on it. The flight was crewed by Captain William Brooke, who was 54. He'd been with National Airlines since 1946. So that's uh, 27 years of experience. And he had uh, just under 22,000 hours of flight time. And uh, the first officer was Eddie Saunders, who was 33, and he'd been with National Airlines since 1965. And he had just over 7,000 hours of flight time. And, of course, they had their flight engineer, uh, Golden Hanks, who was 55, and he'd been with the airline for 23 years, and he had just under 18,000 flight hours. You know, lots of experience on the crew. First officer, not as much experience as the other guys, but still, you know. Lots of experience, new plane. Mm-hmm. And they decide to do experiments. So they were they were at cruising altitude. Let's 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 set the stage for this experiment okay. that they decided to perform. They had departed Houston at 2:40 p.m. 
they were at their cruising altitude of 39,000 feet. About two hours after they took off, they were flying uh, over New Mexico. The captain set the auto throttle system to 257 knots, which is 295 miles an hour or 476 kilometers an hour. And after they reached that speed, the flight engineer uh, and Captain Brock had a conversation about the operation of the engine first stage fan tachometers. You know what a tachometer is, right? Uh, remind me. <laughs> In your car, it, it's what shows you the RPMs. Okay. They were just talking about the operation of basically the tachometers for each of their engines in their plane. And that's like how, how fast the engine is rotating or like spinning, right? Exactly. The revolutions per minute, is that it? Right. So um, they decided they were going to test it out. Wait, what are they testing out? They want to see how the auto throttle system works. They want to see that if the auto throttle system still works without receiving the data from the engines. What? Yeah, they pulled the circuit breakers for the tachometers for the engines. In the NTSB report, according to the captain, they maintained speed and he was satisfied. You know, he's like, oh, okay, the, the auto throttle system still works, even if it's not getting the tachometer data. But he, he was still curious about it. So he lowered the speed oh. a little bit. He lowered the speed five knots to see if the engines would still respond. Uh -huh. The auto throttle actually reacted accordingly. It dropped a bit. So then he disengaged the auto throttle. He's like, okay, well, yeah, I guess, you know, the auto throttle still works even without the tachometers working. And then right at that moment, they hear and feel an explosion. Oh. And it's the number three uh, engine fan assembly had just totally disintegrated. And remember, uh, the DC-10 has three engines, so the number three engine's the one on the right side. Why did he decide to just do this? I don't know. Maybe they were bored? They, they were just curious about it? But, like, do it on the ground. <laughs> right. Without passengers. Or also, like, these aren't the guys to do that. They, yeah. they don't have any training to, yeah. to, to be doing experiments. Uh, I mean, they, they could maybe ask the engineers. They could ask the airline. They could ask the manufacturer. But, you know, don't do this while you're at cruising altitude with a plane full of people. <sighs> so flight engineer Hank saw a fire warning light in the number three fuel shutoff handle and noticed uh, other indicated system failures. So he tried a few times to move the fuel shutoff valve for the engine, but... It wouldn't work, so he activated the firewall shutoff handle. Basically, that just, like, discharges fire extinguisher bottles into the engine, just to be safe, you know, to extinguish any fire that's in there. He also realized that the cabin was depressurizing, so, you know, he goes ahead and re hits the release switch for the uh, passenger oxygen masks. While all this was going on, the first officer was in the passenger cabin when this happened. Uh, so, like, he's in the passenger cabin, all this happens, and, you know, he comes back to the cockpit. And, uh, you know, as he's coming back into the cockpit... Uh, the flight engineer notices that the cabin is also filling with smoke. So the first officer is just like, guys, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's, he's out in the cabin and uh, then, he's, you know, here's an explosion. Like, of course, you know, when I'm not there, something goes wrong. Um, so the crew, you know, they make an emergency descent. They actually land safely 19 minutes after um, the engine failure. They land Wait, at uh, Albuquerque. Did they know that oh, someone had been sucked out the window? No, they had no idea at this point. Uh, what? Right. After landing, you know, it was reported to the what? crew that fragments from the engine fan had dislodged one of the cabin windows. And this caused a man who was sitting in seat 17H to be partially forced through the opening made. Uh, and his seatbelt kind of held him in position for a while. And another passenger tried to pull him back into the plane, but they were unsuccessful. Oh. And he was forced entirely through that cabin window. Oh, my God. So he just got sucked out the window. Right. And, That's and not even actually, a big window. No, it's not. And none of the flight attendants uh, had witnessed it, and they were only made aware of what happened after the plane landed. Well, how are people not screaming and freaking out? And I'm sure people were screaming and freaking out in general at the situation. Okay, yeah. And then so they were just like, yep, everyone's freaking out. All's right. normal. Right. They didn't realize <laughs> that someone got actually got sucked out. 
in their statements, uh, flight attendants had also stated that blue-gray smoke had become increasingly more dense towards the rear of the plane. So, again, that may have caused people to be freaking out. So, you know, they see all these things going on. They know bad stuff's happening. They don't know specifically that someone's gotten sucked out the plane. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happened was the oxygen masks uh, had dropped in the middle section of the cabin, but in other sections of the cabins, the masks didn't drop until three minutes later. And in the rear left of the cabin, the masks didn't drop at all. And passengers had to, like, pry open the the containers or move to other seats. Oh, man. And this whole time, there would have been suction, right? Because the window, like... Right. Right, yeah. All that, I mean, that air's going by. They're going fast. And everything's depressurized. And, in fact, 24 passengers were treated for smoke inhalation or ear problems or minor, you know, cuts and bruises. Uh, the New Mexico State Police and other local organizations, they searched extensively for the missing passenger. And they even tried like computer analysis or trying to figure out like falling trajectories and stuff, but they couldn't find him. In fact, two years passed. It was two years later. Two years. Yeah, there was a construction crew that found skeletal remains. And then it took another year for the medical examiner to positively identify that those remains were of that missing passenger from the plane. Oh, that poor dude. Yeah, so, I mean, he got sucked out of the plane and then it wasn't positively identified until three years after the accident. Obviously, the big question, what happened, right? Why did Mm -hmm. the engine explode the way it did? Did it have anything to do with the experiment that the the flight crew was running at the time? So, you know, the NTSB did some testing. And they found that the tips of the fan blade had rubbed against the shell of the fan case. So obviously that shouldn't happen. Uh, And that's what had caused this explosive disintegration. But they actually couldn't figure out exactly why that happened. It was hitting the edge? Right. So like the tips of that fan blade were hitting like the inside part of that engine, like the the case that they normally sit in. Well, I mean, it's got to have something to do with the experiments. That just seems like too big of a coincidence. Right. But you know know how these investigations go. You you have to find concrete proof. You can't speculate like that yeah so you know they went and they tested the fan blades a few times they found that when the fan was accelerated under unusual conditions or when rapidly accelerated after a fan stall that the tips would rub against the case and after examination of the engine they couldn't find any indication of a failure or malfunction that would have caused this rapid disintegration they then thought maybe the fan blades were forced out of their slots by extremely high dynamic forces but of course they couldn't find any evidence that this Mm -hmm. was the case either And on top of all of that, the NTSB says a mechanical failure alone could not have caused the blades to be released in this way. So they determined that the centrifugal force of the blades must have been greater than normal, which caused the blades to move past their mechanical retainers. And in order for this to have happened, a very rapid blade vibratory force must have taken place. But how, right? How did they start vibrating and, and make this happen? So the crew testified that the explosion happened immediately after the captain disengaged the autothrottle system. So basically when they were wrapping up their experiment. Mm -hmm. The NTSB finds it difficult to relate the procedures that the crew made to the explosion, and they assumed the plane was stable when their experiment took place. However, removing the circuit breakers would remove the limiting authority imposed on the autothrottle system, and the throttle levers would have moved forward if there was an error in the airspeed that required additional thrust. And the throttle levers would have moved at a rate which is determined by the magnitude of error. So basically, all that's saying is when the circuit breakers were removed, some safety systems were no longer functioning. Okay. If the throttle levers were pushed up past their safety level, that this could have happened. But the captain would have observed that this was happening. And he, 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 was, he was actively monitoring the throttle because they were testing it. So he knows that that didn't happen. And you know they believe that the captain would have stopped it because he was messing with the throttle at that time. And since the captain reduced airspeed, he didn't increase it. He reduced it. The throttles would have reduced. So 
the NTSB, they, they can't connect them. They, they find it hard to rationalize that the engine was outside of its normal operating envelope. So even though, like you said, there's implications that the experiment had something to do with this, there's no connection. I don't know. Yeah, right. It's like, it's a really weird coincidence, but there's no concrete evidence linking the two things together. Uh. I have the same reaction you do, Chris. <laughs> like, they shouldn't have been doing this. It's really weird that this happened as they're doing this dumb experiment, but there's no solid way to connect that one led to the other. Did they get in trouble? So I don't know specifically how much trouble they got into or what happened, but I will mm-hmm. say that the captain, William Brock, uh, he didn't retire until 1980, which was seven years after this incident. So huh. whatever amount of trouble they got into, the captain didn't lose his job. Even though he was doing on random experiments for fun that killed someone. Right. So I, I, I can't say for certain. I, I don't know what... If any, uh, if anything happened to them as a result of this, or what kind of uh, punishment they got, but uh, he kept flying for seven more years with that same airline before he uh, retired. Jeez, what what about the passenger? I mean, did did his family sue or? I actually how? don't know much about the passenger. Um, all I saw in the report was that uh, it was a male passenger. There's really not much identifying information about him, hmm. so I, I can't say for certain. Yeah, I, I don't know if there was like out of. Uh, privacy or who knows yeah. i cannot say for certain so like we were saying the you know ntsb can't connect the experiment to the incident so they came to two prominent theories on how these uh, fan blade tips rubbed and caused the disintegration first an acceleration of the engine to an abnormally high rotation speed either by an unrestricted throttle advance or by the auto throttle system or a manual throttle advance by the pilot which created a resonant frequency and the subsequent destructive vibratory mode or second, a piece of inner acoustic panel from the inlet duct separated and restricted airflow into the engine, resulting in a very rapid fan acceleration and a destructive vibratory mode. Regardless uh-huh. of the cause of the high fan speed at the time of the failure, the NTSB is concerned that the flight crew was performing an untested failure analysis on this system, and they should have never performed this during passenger flight operations. So, I mean, they're just trying to speculate on what could have caused that fan blade to start vibrating essentially and to cause it to to disintegrate yeah the ntsb determines that the probable cause of this accident was the disintegration of the number three engine fan assembly as a result of an interaction between the fan blade tips and the fan case the fan tip rub condition was caused by the acceleration of the engine to an abnormally high fan speed which initiated a multi-wave vibratory resonance within the fan section of the engine the precise reason or reasons for the acceleration and the onset of the destructive vibration could not be determined conclusively. So basically, they're saying for some reason, the engine revved up, caused a vibration, and caused the fan blade tips to rub on the case. And explode. And right, and which caused it to uh, explode or disintegrate. So it turns out that some issues like this were found in a lot of DC-10s. Uh-huh. So there were bolts in the engines that are outside of the tolerance that they're supposed to be in. Uh, so you know they went ahead and they sent a dispatch out for all DC-10s to be fixed to keep a situation like this from happening again. So there's these retaining devices for the fan blades that initially they could sustain 18,000 pounds of force. So with these modifications and these new bolts and these updates that they did, uh, they were then able to retain 60,000 pounds of force. So basically, they just made these bolts, oh. they made the system stronger so that it would keep the fan blades in place if something happened and they they went out of spec. Yeah, so they didn't wobble. Right. 
Uh, and the FAA also worked with McDonnell Douglas to make sure that the oxygen units in the planes would be more reliably accessible. So you know, obviously they want to make sure that <laughs> it, the oxygen masks have to work for everyone. This particular plane actually was repaired. It, it kept flying. It um, eventually flew for Pan Am. So you know, this was an incident that did not destroy the plane. They, they were able to fix it and it kept flying for, for years after that. It's good that only one person died, but still, it seems like he died unnecessarily. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's definitely a tragedy. Uh, it, it could have been worse, but still, you know, it's it's one of those unsatisfying ones where there's no very clear, this yeah. is what caused it, and that that's why this well, happened. You know, it's more like... I think I know what caused it. <laughs> yeah, we could definitely <laughs> speculate about it. But um, still, lessons were learned from this. You know, the, the engines for all DC-10s were made safer as a result. Hopefully no more pilots did experiments in the cockpit during flights anymore. If you haven't heard that Dollar Shave Club has great razors, let me be the first to welcome you to the club. Stop buying expensive razors out of habit and start thinking about joining Dollar Shave Club today. Right now, try out Dollar Shave Club's Ultimate Shave Starter Set for a one-time trial offer for only 5 bucks plus free shipping. After that, you can continue to get an unimaginably smooth shave as razor refills ship at regular prices right to your door as often as you want. My personal favorite, one of the products they have is the Shave Butter. It's a gentle translucent shave aid that softens whiskers helps fight razor bumps and leaves your skin feeling unimaginably smooth so ditch your overpriced razor join the club today with dollar shave club's ultimate shave starter set for only five bucks it has everything you need for an amazing shave it's got a six blade razor shave butter prep scrub and post shave dew all shipped right to wherever you call home nowadays and after that first box razor refill ship at regular prices on the schedule that you want Try the Ultimate Shave Starter Set today for just five bucks plus free shipping at dollarshaveclub.com slash blackboxdown. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash blackboxdown. Welcome to the club. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by DoorDash. Continue supporting restaurants in your community safely. There are thousands of restaurants open for delivery on DoorDash that need your patronage now more than ever. Support your favorite restaurants on DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you food you're craving right now right to your door. Ordering is easy. You just open up the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with the new contactless delivery drop-off setting. With over 300,000 partners in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, and Australia, you can support your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, the Cheesecake Factory. Many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery. Just open the DoorDash app, select your favorite local restaurant, and your food will be left right at your door. DoorDash deliveries are contactless to keep communities they operate in safe. So right now, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLACKBOXDOWN. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app in the App Store and enter code BLACKBOXDOWN. Don't forget, that's code BLACKBOXDOWN for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. So speaking of pilots, we have our, our next story here, which is uh, British Airways 5390. Like I said, it was a passenger flight from Birmingham, England, and heading over to Malaga Airport in Spain back in June of 1990. The plane was crewed by Captain Tim Lancaster, who was 42 and had just over 11,000 flight hours. First officer, Alastair Acheson, who had uh, 1,100 hours of flight time. And the plane used was a BAC-111 that had over 37,000 hours of flight time. So I'm not terribly familiar with these planes. Uh, this BAC, this is a, a company that no longer makes planes. So I think they went defunct in 1970. So I'm not terribly familiar with this specific plane, but it's still a plane. I still know generally uh, about it. So the plane took off from Birmingham International Airport at about 7.20 a.m. and was cleared to fly at 23,000 feet. Uh, First Officer Atchison had been the one flying during takeoff and he started the climb. And then Captain Lancaster took over during the rest of the climb. Once they took off, uh, both pilots had taken off their shoulder harnesses and Captain Lancaster had loosened his lap belt. 
So 13 minutes after takeoff at 7.33, the plane was climbing through 17,300 feet and the cabin crew were preparing to serve a meal and drinks and suddenly there was a loud bang and the fuselage started to fill with condensation mist. And this happened because there was an explosive decompression in the cockpit. The door to the cockpit got blown in, coming to rest across the radio and navigation console, and Captain Lancaster was partially sucked out of the plane through his windscreen. So his windscreen had just basically blown out, and the decompression had sucked in that door into the cockpit, and it also sucked the captain partway out through uh, where his windscreen used to be. So like just out the front of the plane. Right. So two of the flight attendants rushed in, and one of them grabbed Lancaster by the waist trying to hold him in, and the other one removed the door debris and stowed it in the toilet. Because, you know, the, the, the door was like sitting and blocking all the instruments and everything. So they had to, you know, clear all that stuff out of there. First Officer Atchison fought with the plane to regain controls and he descended to 11,000 feet. He engaged the autopilot and made a distress call to air traffic control. But he couldn't hear what they were saying because of the noise from the rushing air. Yeah. So the flight attendant who cleared the door re-entered the cockpit and hooked his arm through the seat belts of the jump seat and assisted the other flight attendant in holding on to Lancaster. So they're just holding... Is he still half out way out the... Wait, where is he right now? He's still half out the window. Oh my God. Uh, they were trying to pull him back in and they could see his head and torso outside the window, but the slipstream, like the force of the wind made it difficult to pull him in. Oh, and his head's out too. Right. And the wind was so strong and violent, it kept causing his head to hit the plane. Oh, the crew thought he was dead because his head kept hitting the plane over and over. Oh, my God. But they didn't want to let go of his body because they were afraid that it would hit like the engine or the wing or like a part of the plane and it would cause a worse problem. Yeah. So a third flight attendant came into the cockpit to relieve the first flight attendant because the first one was losing strength and actually started to get frostbite and bruising on his arms from holding on to the captain. So, oh, yeah. So the captain is also out there getting frostbite. Right. right? He, like, yeah, it's it's really cold. He's getting banged up. and fr- Oh, my God. So the new flight attendant grabs onto Lancaster's right leg and strapped himself into the jump seat, then was able to grab both legs. But Lancaster slid out another six to eight inches. So at this point, he's being held by his ankles. That's all they can grab onto him in the cockpit. Is there not like a rope or I mean, I guess they don't have like... Yeah, this is not one of those scenarios that, that they plan <laughs> yeah. for. There's, there, You know, we always talk about the checklist and the plans. I don't think pilot getting sucked out of the window is, uh, is on oh. any checklist. So the plane had descended to 10,000 feet and slowed down to 150 knots. And First Officer Atchison was given vectors to Southampton Airport, where he made a successful landing uh, on runway two at 7.55 a.m., which was 22 minutes after the decompression happened. So he's been... The- Captain was outside the plane for 22 minutes, banging against the window. Right. And he was held by his ankles the whole time until the plane landed. So when the plane came to a stop, passengers were let out of the plane, while local fire services recovered Captain Lancaster and pulled him back into the plane. They didn't want to pull him back in before the fire? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I hadn't thought about that. I don't know why. He likes it out there now. Like, pull him back in. I guess they wanted to wait for rescue services in case he needed yeah. medical attention. But for whatever reason... They waited. Fire services pulled him back into the plane and he was taken to Southampton General Hospital and uh, he survived, but he suffered bone fractures in his right arm and wrist, a broken left thumb, bruising, frostbite and shock. Yeah. Yeah. One of the flight attendants had cuts and bruises on his arm, but there were no other injuries besides that. That is a hell of a story. Was he conscious during that? Uh, No, he was not, which is probably why they also thought that uh, he he wasn't alive anymore. (laughs) So, obviously, everyone wants to know what happened. Why did the windscreen uh, get blown out, right? Uh-huh. So, the windscreen was found near Chelsea, Oxfordshire, along with some of the bolts. So, in total, 90 bolts were used to attach the windscreen to the plane. And of those, 11 had remained in the windscreen, 18 were found loose nearby, and one had remained in the aircraft window frame. 
26 of the recovered bolts were found to be not the correct bolts. Oh. And the other four bolts were reused old bolts. Uh. The investigation branch also found that 84 of the 90 bolts used to secure the windscreen in place were 0.026 inches below the diameter of the bolts that were supposed to be used. I'm going I'm to repeat that because it's such a small amount. 84 of the 90 bolts were 0.026 inches below the diameter they were supposed to be, which is 0.66 millimeters for our international audience. That's tiny, though. That's It's such a small difference. And the other six bolts were 0.1 inches too short, or 2.5 millimeters. So they didn't go in all the way. Right. So, yes, what do I say? Six of them didn't go in quite all the way, and 84 of them weren't quite wide enough. The left windscreen was replaced on this plane during the night shift of June 8th to 9th, and this flight, 5390, was the first flight with a newly installed windscreen on the 10th. And it turns out the old windscreen had also been fitted onto the plane with bolts that were 0.1 inches too short as well. And it was used for four years that way. Mm. So it was like vibrating and shaking and slowly coming loose. Right. But it had been replaced. So it had been in use for four years with wrong bolts. Then it was replaced. And then on the first flight after it was replaced, it got blown out. Oh, okay. But you said they also used the wrong bolts on when it was replaced? The, the old windscreen had been uh, on the plane with bolts that were 0.1 inches too short for four years. Then they replaced the windscreen, and the first flight after it was replaced, it blew out. So the investigation branch did some tests, and they found that with the proper size bolt in the proper size nut, the amount of torque needed to screw in the bolt was between 10 and 11 pounds. When they tested the amount of torque needed to screw in the smaller bolts, the amount of force was only between 1 and 7 pounds. So they should have felt that it was it was loose. It didn't require very much force to screw those in. Uh-huh. It was found that the bolts themselves were not individually labeled, and the mechanics who replaced the bolts, they just kind of eyeballed the new bolts, and they thought, and they were close enough, you know? And it seems like oh. the ones who replaced this were just either negligent or lazy, like they didn't want to go through and properly size everything. Yeah. If the ones before were also the wrong size... They might have looked at those and thought, you know. Right. But that's obviously not the way that it's supposed to oh, yeah, be yeah. done. <laughs> you know, you think if you're doing this, you look at the manual. There's, there's got to be procedures. You, you know, you size everything and make sure it's correct. And according to the investigation bureau, they did not identify the proper bolts that were supposed to be used, obviously, because they used the wrong ones. Mm-hmm. Their storage system to identify the stock and location of the bolts, you know, wasn't used. And the warning from the storekeeper to use the proper bolts was not taken into account. And the storekeeper is the person who like keeps all the materials on hands for the technicians and keeps all the parts organized and stocked. And he he warned them when they were replacing it. Right. He warned them like make sure you use the proper bolts, and they just kind of did whatever. Jeez. So yeah, when they were replacing that windscreen, the shift maintenance manager took one of the old bolts to the store. When I say the store, it's like their storage, right? Not he didn't go yeah. down to like the hardware store. He went to like their storage. So the shift maintenance manager took one of the old bolts to use as a comparison when selecting the new bolts. And he went through several trays and eventually found the bolt that matched. He saw the bolt was labeled as A211-7D. Then the store supervisor informed him that the correct part was labeled as A211-8D, but he didn't press the issue. The shift maintenance manager decided the bolts that were previously used were good enough, so that's what he went with. So it's like you said, he saw that the bolts were used previously and thought, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, uh it's like one mistake gets echoed down for years. <laughs> right. And they knew. He's, he's even told, like, that's not the right label. You should be using the other screw with a different label. But they figured it was good enough. So, I mean, the amount of unfilled space left by the small bolt heads was not recognized as an issue by these guys. And the fact that the, they were smaller bolt heads also went unnoticed. 
So the investigation bureau blames a shift maintenance manager for all these unnoticed problems as he was the one who certified the replacement of the windscreen. The investigation bureau also found that the work of the shift maintenance manager was not subject to review by another manager, so there was no chance in his error being detected. So basically there was not another person double-checking his work. Mm -hmm. There was also an independent final inspection, but the windscreens were not designated as a vital point of inspection, so they weren't double-checked. The investigation bureau claims that the errors were likely made due to sleep deprivation and circadian effects associated with the end of a first night shift. But the practices of the shift maintenance manager were not considered to be one-off, but were symptomatic of a longer-term failure on his part. So there were three factors that were determined by the investigation bureau that led to this. A safety-critical task not identified as a vital point was undertaken by one individual who also carried total responsibility for the quality achieved and the installation was not tested until the aircraft was airborne on a passenger-carrying flight. So basically they're saying this is a critical task that should have been double-checked and it was not checked and no one tested it until the plane was flying with passengers. Okay, so the second point. The shift maintenance manager's potential to achieve quality in the windscreen fitting process was eroded by his inadequate care, poor trade practices, failure to adhere to company standards, and use of unsuitable equipment, which were judged symptomatic of a longer-term failure by him to observe the promulgated procedures. So I had to look up promulgated. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to read you the, uh, the definition here. Promote or make widely known. Okay. It's a new word. Yeah. You learn about plane crashes and that, word that, that's of the day. Word of the day, promulgated. So they're just really laying the blame on the ship maintenance manager here, saying he did a bad job, had poor practices, didn't follow proper procedure. So just really putting all the blame on him. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. And the third uh, point, the British Airways local management product samples and quality audits had not detected the existence of inadequate standards employed by the shift maintenance manager because they did not monitor directly the working practices of the shift maintenance manager. So basically, nobody caught that he was doing a bad job because nobody was double checking his work. Yeah. So British Airways uh, issued an instruction to be carried out on all of its BAC 111s to remove every fourth bolt in the windscreen to check for correct length. And when they did this, two of the aircraft failed to check and they were found that they had short bolts as well. So this was a ubiquitous problem across multiple planes. Right. And in fact... Not ubiquitous. That's It was a recurring problem. Yeah. And in fact, another airline checked four of their uh, BAC-111s, and two of those planes were also found with short bolts. Oh. So, right, this is happening everywhere. Uh, but none of these other planes with short bolts also had the small diameter bolts, which this particular plane did. So... Recommendations were made that included adding more systems and checks to the definition of vital points during airworthiness checks from Civil Aviation Authority. So basically they're saying, like, obviously this needs to be a vital point. They just added more vital points to be double-checked. And uh, for British Airways to review their quality assurance systems and educate and encourage their engineers to provide feedback from the shop floor. For British Airways to conduct an in-depth audit to the work practices in Birmingham and for the Civil Aviation Authority to consider the need for periodic training and testing of engineers. So basically, they're just recommending everyone's work be double-checked, everyone uh-huh. get more training, everyone get tested more often, which is what you want. You want that, you know, everyone's work to be checked and to be done correctly. Yeah. So First Officer Atchison and crew members Susan Gibbons and Nigel Ogden were awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Air, and Atchison was also awarded a 1992 Polaris Award for his ability and heroism. The plane was repaired and returned to service, and it was eventually sold to Jero International in 1993 and stayed there until it ceased operations, and it was scrapped in 2001. So I'm sure you're wondering about the captain, mm-hmm. Tim Lancaster. He returned to work less than five months later, and he eventually retired from British Airways in 2003. He then flew with EasyJet until he retired from commercial piloting in 2008. Do you get like an award or something for that? Or like, I mean, the other guys got awards, but 
like did he get anything <laughs> well i mean he didn't do much i don't i i, I, well, I didn't I guess see like, he got any awards necessarily did he get like a bonus or something i don't know some sort of monetary he may have gotten some insurance payout i don't know <laughs> it just seems like you can get banged around like that almost sucked out of a plane you should get something yeah i don't know i i, I couldn't say uh, so the first officer, Atchison, he actually retired from British Airways shortly after this incident, and he joined Jet 2 and remained with them until he made his last commercial flight on June 28th, 2015, which was his 65th birthday. So uh, everyone survived. Everyone, you know, was okay. Well, the captain was injured, but he returned flying five months later, mm-hmm. and you know they both continued their career and uh, were able to continue flying commercially for many years. But uh, yeah, I mean, just it seems like such... A non-issue, right? Oh, you use a, a screw that's a little too small. You know, I'm sure we've all done that, right? In home improvement yeah. projects, you're like, got like a, a drawer full of screws. You're like, yeah, oh, this will fit. But, yeah. you know, you're, you're not worried about, you know, pressure and taking a plane up into the air and people's safety. Like when I do it, at worst, like my light switch cover falls off. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit different. Yeah, I say that because I looked over at my light switches and I realized one of the screws is missing. So I got to go find that screw. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so uh, that, that's it. Uh, National Airlines 27 and British Airways 5390. Two incidents where people were sucked out of planes. Luckily, only one person perished between these two incidents. Could have been way worse for both cases. Yeah. But still still sad for uh, the one man who was pulled out of the plane over New Mexico for seemingly no reason. Ugh. So, uh, oh, oh, I, 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 sh- I want to plug our social media one more time. You should follow us at Black Box Down Pod on Twitter and Instagram. There's photos of the plane that uh, Captain Lancaster got sucked out of, and uh, it's kind of bloody on the side of the plane where he was banging up against oh, no. it. Yeah, if you send uh, it to me right, can you send it to me right now? Yeah, I'll send it to you right now <laughs> if you want to if you want to see what it looks like. Oh, yeah, I, I, I showed Chris the photo, and it's uh, it looks pretty bad. I mean, the guy, you can tell that he obviously was banged up pretty hard against that plane. Yeah, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, if you want to see. Uh, what that looks like. Make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. The guy from the first plane, was he a, a lot awake and conscious the whole time as he fell to the ground? Probably not. You know, they were at cruising altitude at 39,000 feet, uh, so there's not very much oxygen up there. And uh-huh. So he probably lost consciousness pretty quickly. Uh, I don't know if he would have regained it before he hit the ground or not. Yeah, because... oh. That's just yeah. You think about you know when when you lose pressure in a plane yeah. at altitude, that's why the oxygen masks come down because otherwise you're not going to be able to breathe. So he was conscious, and then he lost pressure, and then probably passed out, and then w- maybe woke up as he was like falling to the ground. Oh my god, that poor mm-hmm. dude! Uh, and 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 honestly, it's like that's assuming the force of being taken out the window didn't kill him. I I don't know. There's not yeah. enough details on that. He may have hit his head going out, or you know who knows. Ugh. Better not to dwell on that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you uh, enjoy this podcast, make sure you give us a good review wherever you consume podcasts. And uh, if you have any friends who like skydiving, send, yeah. <laughs> send them this episode. <laughs> uh, they could they could probably relate. They understand what it's like to, to jump out of a plane. Yeah, that's a good recommendation. Or people who are interested in skydiving or, or considering it. <laughs> yeah. And just a reminder, we're going to be doing a special uh, taping on September 24th at 3.30 p.m. Central Time for the RTX at Home event. You can get more information at rtxevent.com. Uh, if you've ever wanted to listen to us record an episode live, uh, you should check it out. You can come join us and you can listen. Uh, again, that's September 24th at 3.30 p.m. We're going to be doing a special live taping. With Q&A and stuff, too. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do an episode and we'll do Q&A. We'll take some questions from, uh, from some of our listeners. Uh, so you definitely check it out. All right. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, We'll be back again next week with another episode.